Hello, everyone. Welcome to Compass Teachers Show. I'm your host, Tiffany. My job is to interview teachers around the world and tease out their teaching tactics, education research, or tools they use. Hopefully, this show can offer some ideas for you to experiment in your classroom. So we will be exploring social emotional learning with brain science. We are really, really excited to have wonderful Andrea Smadi join us today. Andrea Smadi is a former middle school teacher who began working with success and social emotional learning principles with students in the late 1990s. Andrea's book "Level Up: A Brain-Based Strategy to Skyrocket Student Success Achievement" uses the latest research to help others increase their learning potential. She is also the founder of Achieve Three Sixty, which offers programs grounding in brain-based research and practical neuroscience to help parents, teachers, coaches. And employees to optimize learning, well-being, and achievement at home, school, or the workplace. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Andrea. Hello, Andrea. Welcome to our show. Hi, Tiffan. Thank you so much for having me. So, first of all, I think it will be great to、um, know Andrea your journey first. So. I know that you started to work on integrating social emotional learning very early on, and I'm curious how social emotional learning came to you. Definitely, it actually began when I left the classroom as a teacher. I did not last very long as a classroom teacher. I taught behavioral students. In Toronto, and my students were very bad, and I burned out. Very quickly because I had no strategies in place at all to manage my students, let alone teach what was required for them. So I left the classroom and I went to work for a motivational speaker.、Um, some people may have heard of him. His name is Bob Proctor. He was、uh, done very well for teaching success principles to adults and mindset and. Around、um, growth, and、uh, he was actually challenged to work with twelve teenagers, and it was pretty pretty recent after I had left the classroom, and I thought, well, I'm going to go work for this speaker, and、um, it was just kind of interesting how it all happened. It was through a chance meeting through my next door neighbor that I met and came across the speaker. And I thought, you know, I resigned from teaching, and I went and I started to learn these principles.、Um, one of his his most famous book was called "You Were Born Rich," and it's not just rich financially, but rich in potential. He talks about the fact that most of us have potential within ourselves that we don't use. And I read this book when I was in the classroom. I was in a staff meeting, and I was reading it behind my binder. And I was thinking, wow, there's so much that I want to do, and so I ended up going to work for him. And then this amazing opportunity when he was challenged to work with 12 teenagers, and it was 
one of those things that it was like a moment of truth for me because I was trying to discover what am I supposed to do with myself, with my life. Um, teaching didn't work out the way I thought it was going to be. It was very stressful. I thought I'm going a different path. This path didn't make my dad very happy. You know, my mom supported whatever path I went, but my dad was like, what are you doing? You know, you're going to regret this decision to break your teaching contract. You'll regret one day you're not going to have benefits. And all these things came into my head. But here I was, and I was sitting in the audience, and the speaker was challenged to work with these 12 kids, 12 teenagers. And it was with this topics like uh, setting goals, having a better attitude, um, how to have a growth mindset, how to respond instead of react in situations. And these are all skills that we now know to be called social and emotional skills. But back then they weren't called that, at least I didn't know what they were. They were like soft skills and they weren't important in the classroom at the time. But what I watched with these 12 kids and, you know, here I'm a former teacher sitting there going, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? And there were these 12 kids that took these concepts and it like completely transformed their lives. And, and I'm talking in a matter of months that these kids were working with this speaker and, and the speaker at the time wasn't very personable with children. He was more like uh, he stood in front of adults, but he was challenged to work with these kids. And so he kind of had to do it. And it, I was watching him from the point of view of, wow, if, imagine if these skills were being taught by an educator, first of all, someone that's been trained to work with children. And, and then the impact he had, these kids, some of them went from C grades in their academics to A grades with their sports. Some of them were bench warmers, not performing well with their sports, and they went to starting lineups. And, and then just the fact that they were standing on stage speaking in front of a group of 8,000 people. And I remember we were at the Louisiana Superdome in New Orleans, and and you had these kids on stage. And you know, when you're a teenager, that's probably the most difficult thing is public speaking. And these kids were all up on stage and the audience full of adults were taking notes of what they were saying. And so that's really where it happened. I, I noticed these are things that, that are so powerful that changed these kids' lives. And I knew right then, it like hit me like a brick in my stomach, Tifa. And it was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know how, but these are skills that, that I recognized really changed these kids' lives. And that's where it all began for me. Wow, that's really amazing. So um, other than academic uh, improvement, I'm curious about what specific behavior change that impressed you the most in these 12 kids, like before and after. Yeah, definitely. And now we're talking about a matter of months. So normally these changes don't take place that quickly. If we were to go and implement these 
concepts into a classroom, into a school. It's going to take time to recognize, but the fact that these kids had direct like laser target lessons, I was a part of writing some of the lessons back then. And we were writing one lesson a week and these kids would get the lesson directly with the speaker and then implement the ideas. So um, some of the, obviously some of the most important things were self-confidence. And so when you're a teenager, it's the self-confidence, the um, self-awareness. These are all skills that we're coming into as we're growing and going through life and learning who we are. And these children got like a fast track course on, you know, who are you? What are you? What are your goals in life? If you're to ask a teenager, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? you, You would probably get like a stumble. They wouldn't know. And I remember the speaker asked me that in my late 20s. What do you want to do with your life? And I just remember going, well, I don't know, but I know it's not what I was doing then. And when you find what you want to do with your life, it's like so peaceful and amazing. It's like all the bells in the sky go off and you're like, this is it. You know, you recognize it. And so these kids got that type of targeted instruction on introspection, looking at themselves, what what do they want to develop? Maybe they they need to develop some skills if they want to uh, have a career in a certain industry and they don't have the skills they need, then they had the awareness that they needed to go build those skills. So that was the, the main thing that I saw. It wasn't really, these kids came from great homes. They were there were not any behavior issue, issues with these kids, not like the kids that I taught in, in the classroom. I, I don't know if they would have improved that quickly because, you know, there's so many different factors. It's like, you know, their home lives and all of that, that these kids came from uh, very, uh, you know, target parents that were goal setters themselves. So they had like a step ahead already. But it just was amazing how fast they learned and took these skills and and filled the gaps that they had with with what they were learning. And the other thing I really love about your work, you put out so many resources there to bridge the gap between science and learning and especially brain based science. Like, how did you uh, meet neuroscience? and like having another field of passion to bridge the gap? Yeah, that's a really good question because it was a huge opportunity that could have been lost, Tiffen. It it happened when my program was chosen in Arizona for grants. Um, some grant funding was here and I submitted an application to have my program chosen. And it was awarded five schools were going to work with my book and and curriculum. And then one of the schools said, I can't use the program as it is. I don't like it. You need to write me another book. And I could have said, oh, you know, forget it. You just don't get to do the program. This is the way it is. And, you know, not taken the criticism um, and used it to understand why, you know, what, what don't you like about it? What could I improve? And so I went into the school administrator and he said, this is why I need you to write me a a different book. He wanted me to go from talking about 
in the beginning, I was because of what I had learned from the speaker, I only knew about the mind and how it related to success. But he said, I need you to talk about how the brain um, translates for success. And so he started taking all these books off his bookshelf that he wanted me to read. And it was overwhelming in the beginning. I thought, is this something I can really do? I didn't know. I only know one area. And suddenly now I have to understand how the brain works. But I was lucky because at the time I was in a training program with John Asraf and he had a neuroscience researcher attached to his program named Mark Waldman. And so I actually took some of the grant funding that I got and I hired Mark Waldman to teach me the basics of neuroscience. And that's where I wrote Level Up. I took everything to do with the mind out. I sat with this educator. He circled everything that needed to come out. And I wrote the book for schools in mind who were learning the basics of neuroscience. So would you mind telling us what neuroscience has found about the relationship with emotion and learning? Yeah, definitely. So when I first started to study neuroscience with Mark Waldman and hired him to, you know, have him teach me this, back then everyone was talking about the three parts of the brain and it was like the reptilian brain, the limbic brain and the neocortex. And that's how everyone was talking about emotions in the beginning, like emotions are in the limbic part of the brain. And that is like the old way of thinking now. And the new way, at least now, we talk about um, how the brain deals with um, networks. So it's like brain network theory. So our emotions are all over our brain and how emotions impact learning. When there's something that you're learning and you're emotionally invested in it, it, it actually solidifies the memory. And so I had to go back, actually, when I got this question from you, I had to go back and look at some of my other interviews, like with Mary Helen Imordino Yang. She's an expert on learning in the brain, especially when it comes to emotions and learning. She wrote the book, Emotions, Learning in the Brain. And she talks about, we feel, therefore we learn in the very beginning of her book. And I could spend the rest of my life following her work and I would learn something new from her every day. But um, so, so what happens with, with learning in the brain? So it's, it's evolved, neuroscience has evolved since I started beginning uh, learning about the brain and the three parts of the brain. Um, now everybody's talking about these networks or regions of the brain that light up with something like a certain emotion. And it's not surprising the most of the significant emotion centers lie below our cortex, which separates us from other animals. But at least for the past hundred years, neuroscience has noted a link between, let's just say somebody's damaged a part of their brain, the left part of their brain. It has links to certain moods like depression. And if you have damage to the right, it can be associated with a broad array of positive emotions. So there's lots now that they're discovering about how emotions connect to learning in the brain, but it's now all dealing with these networks. Instead of like in the past, you would say, 
the amygdala was an important part of the brain. And amygdala is where we have our fight, flight, and freeze. And they used to say, well, students in the classroom, if they're not feeling safe, they're going to be frozen and they can't learn. And that's the old way of thinking because we now know that there's so much more involved with these neural networks that things like mindfulness in the classroom can make a student feel safe and calm down the whole network of their brain. Uh, according to Castle, social-emotional learning includes five competencies. And to our listeners, if you don't know these competencies, you could check out the conversation I have with our past guests, Elizabeth and Wendy. I will have these episode links in the show notes as well. But today I want to take uh, our conversation around self-awareness and self-management. So Andrea, you once said that based on research, when students perceive that their teacher knows them both academically and personally, they are better positioned to take ownership of their learning. I'm curious what happens to a kid's brain as they have this kind of perception and thus impact their attitude in learning. Definitely. Well, it's, it goes back to the old way that we used to think about the brain, uh, the three parts of the brain, and know that the limbic area, um, a student has to feel safe in class. And if you don't feel safe, you cannot learn. Um, and if your classroom has the feeling of calmness and safety, it reduces those students that might be coming in with other issues like ACEs, adverse childhood experiences that affect them that probably every one of my students had, they were coming in and it was really difficult to get them to learn because they couldn't sit still because they've had a whole bunch of other situations happen to them before they got to me. So the first thing is it's all about safety in the classroom. And Dr. Dan Siegel has written many books on this topic with Tina Bryson, um, you know, making sure your environment is predictable and structured to have posters of whatever rules you want written and then you verbally say them out loud. Um, Dr. Lori Desatel is another one who does amazing work with schools. She taught me the idea of an amygdala first aid station. And I was when I was first uh, working with some of my schools with the level up material, it, I would I created an amygdala first aid station for these high school students because I would be in there, I'd be in the classroom and I'd be teaching this to them. And always something would happen. Some sort of fight would happen and the teacher was like, you know, don't talk when Miss Samadhi's talking and someone would get kicked out. And I'm like, instead of that, could we just have the student go to the amygdala first aid station where there was like some lotions or something calming for them to do to just break whatever was happening? Because usually it's just something silly and it's not worth kicking the student out of the whole class. And this whole thing happens. They go down and they lose all these points. They get in trouble. So just having a place for the student to calm themselves is another strategy. And then also research shows a slower, calmer voice helps reduce the stress in the classroom and increase positivity to students' brains. So there's a lot we can do from the, the teacher side of, of it as well. These are things I definitely did not know when I was a classroom teacher because I was always yelling at my students and 
you know, sit down, stop that. I still remember their names because I yelled them out so many times. And my screaming voice definitely escalated their behavior and made them worse. So all these strategies are things that I wish they had taught me in teacher training class, but none of them were there at the time. So. Wow. I think these are really, really practical tips to use in a classroom. It's really uh, pretty easy to implement, like just to control your voice and have a safe place for kids to calm down. Now let's talking about self-awareness, one of the competency. And self-awareness is the ability to see ourselves clearly, understand who we are, how others see us, and how we fit into the world. And Andrea, in your podcast, you give a lot of great tips for being more self-aware. And I will, I will also link the podcast episode to the show notes so people can find out. Now let's assume we incorporate the tips you suggesting to our lives. How could we help our students to practice self-awareness? Any activities we can do in the classroom? Definitely. So, so being self-aware, you know yourself, like self-awareness, know thyself. So the first thing I would suggest is to be able to identify your emotions, whether they're positive or negative, like know what frustrates you, what overwhelms you so that you are just aware of those types of scenarios so that you name it like, oh, doing math overwhelms me so that we can go step by step and break down a math problem and uh, not get overwhelmed. We probably still will, but, you know, just by scaffolding and breaking it down, taking it in smaller steps, it makes it less frustrating for you. Um, know what makes you happy as well. Mark Brackett from the Yale Center of Emotional Intelligence, he has an app called the Emotion Meter, and you can measure your, your own emotions. And he wrote the book, Permission to Feel. And uh, I think this is the most important first step to being self-aware is just knowing yourself, what frustrates you, what makes you happy, and having strategies to be able to self-regulate when you get out of your, your emotions take over, know how to bring yourself back. Um, that, that's one step. Another one would be um, knowing like how to deal with the emotions. Like, like when you get stressed out, like a, a student should have a strategy for like knowing how to calm your brain when you're stressed. And for me, I use exercise. It's like if, if I didn't exercise in the morning, there's no way I could deal with the stressors that come up and and stay calm i know i would probably lose it if i had not had my exercise uh, or being outdoors and so you have to have your students knowing how to bring their balance back um, maybe they need to get up in the middle of class and go get a drink of water or go to the amygdala first aid station that everyone should have a strategy for how they deal with their stress to bring them back um, another one would be being clear on your values and beliefs. And I think this is something that develops over our whole lifetime. Like if you were to ask me when I was in sixth grade, you know, what are your values or, and beliefs? I would be like, what, what, what do you mean by that? 
you know, but over time, as we, uh, our self-awareness develops, I think it, it, from what I've learned from Mark Waldman, it's age 30 that we, that we really have this level of self-awareness. It develops over time. We get to know who we are. And over time, we can finally uh, know who we are, know what our values are and our beliefs. And then we can start challenging our beliefs. Like, why do I believe that? Is that a belief that works for me now. Like I know some of my beliefs from, um, you know, when I was in my late twenties, uh, I've completely blown them up. Like I, I would never have eaten butter at all. Butter is like something that I would say, Oh, butter makes you fat because it's high in fat. And now I have learned that putting butter in some, in my coffee is something that keeps me lean. But I would, if you have told me that in my late twenties, I would be like, "No way, I'm not touching wow. the butter." It, I didn't fast. know that. <laughs> and that. I got that from interviewing some of these people that talk about intermittent fasting and the importance of like healthy fats don't make you fat. What makes you fat is the the breads and and the carbs. They're the things that make you fat. But you know, it, it's changing some of your beliefs as you go through life. You you start to question like, why do I believe that? Is that really true? And and that's like another part of self-awareness. It's just knowing um, and, and challenging yourself and seeing what works for you. Maybe like maybe back in the day, I liked, liked a certain exercise. I used to do a certain thing and, you know, maybe like 20 years later and no, I don't like that thing anymore. I want to change it and have a different belief. So you've just got to be challenging yourself always. Is that working for me or not? And that's self-awareness. Right. And Andrea, you just mentioned about the strategies, the importance of strategies to deal with the emotions we aware and I think that is congruence with self-management um, is the ability to match our emotions and behaviors according to the demands of the situation. So what kind of way you would suggest that teacher to help students to figure out how they can manage themselves? Yeah, definitely. And I think about for students in the classroom, I think of them sitting at their desks, you know, it's, it's just the way that schools are. And I'm not sure where, uh, what schools are like where, where you are, but you know, it's not a lot of getting up and walking around. And I know my daughter needs to get up and walk around. So when we had the pandemic here and they were being homeschooled, and they had to sit at their desk, she would stand up and go and pet the cat. And when she got frustrated with her school. And so all these things I learned if, wow, if she was in the classroom, there's no cat to pet, you know, how does she take that now and learn how to calm or, or self-soothe herself when she's stressed out? So just knowing to identify feelings first of all like ah this problem is frustrating me like be able to name the emotion and and then you know maybe the teacher could come and start to find different strategies to scaffold when the students are are having a problem but instead of keeping it inside like i hear a lot of students will not say oh i'm frustrated because they don't want to embarrass themselves in front of the class like they don't know but just to start saying like everybody doesn't have to be perfect we can sometimes not know the answer and it's okay and then the teacher models that and they say sometimes when they don't know something like maybe when they had a uh, to use zoom 
maybe Zoom, they had no idea how to use Zoom or how to use certain technology. And then just sharing that with the students. And then the students realize, oh, wow, the teachers have things that they don't know as well. And so just identifying when do we get stressed out and what are ways that we can calm ourselves down with the resources we have. If we're in a classroom, how can we um, have our students work through the problem, maybe get up, maybe have a, an amygdala first aid station where they could walk to. I think my daughter would do really well in a classroom that had like maybe a pillow that instead of a cat, there can't be cats in school, but maybe a nice soft pillow she could go and, and touch or do something like that to calm herself down when she gets frustrated. Those types of things I think would work really well in, in the elementary level for sure. And given that our brains develop differently at different age, does the approach or goal in self-awareness and self-regulation differ for different age groups? Definitely. And as, as I was looking at that question, I, I did some research on it because I just know self-awareness is something that we develop through a whole lifetime. And from what I've been told from Mark Waldman, who I study with at age 30, we should have a good idea of who we are. But I found something in National Geographic that really talked about that it begins when we're an infant where you see a mirror and that's like level one of self-awareness. Oh, I see myself. There's a person in it. Level two, as you get older, oh, you recognize that person is me. Level three, that person's going to be me forever. Level four, someone else can see that person in me. And then we start to develop like, who is that person? What are my beliefs and values? What are my needs? Um, what are my feelings? What makes me happy? What makes me sad? So yeah, it absolutely evolves over time, the self-awareness. And I think we could see it like I, I looked at some television shows that were popular when I was doing this work with students in the high school level in the classroom. And there was this um, show that was on Netflix. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it was called Stranger Things. It was like this scary show on Netflix. That, well, there was this character in Stranger Things. His name was Jonathan. And he was in high school and he used to carry around his, um, his camera with him. He was really into photography. And my question to the students were, was Jonathan self-aware or not? And the students were all able to pick up that Jonathan was self-aware. And there was this other character, Stephen, that had no idea who he was, was not self-aware. Um, he was always getting into fights and arguments. And so I could give them an example of a TV show that they all had watched and pick out a character and say, well, Jonathan knew himself that he liked photography. He was pretty sure of who he was. Like if someone came up to him and took his camera and smashed it to the ground, that would really bother him. He was re really into his photography. Whereas someone like Steven had no idea what he, he was passionate about. So that kind of helps students to, to see, well, who am I? What, what's my purpose in this world, which we're all trying to figure out as we're in high school and even beyond until we figure it out. And there's that aha moment. Oh, this is what I'm meant to do. And then that's what you dedicate your life to doing. Mm -hmm. 
That's a really great activity to do. Like talk about something that all of the kids, most of the kids are watching, and discuss the emotional development or emotional、uh, expression in the TV show. So, Andrea, last question about the brain-based research. There are so many research or papers out there. How did you find the practical resource in this giant pool of knowledge? Like, is there any particular journal, website, or organization you tap into constantly? Yes, definitely. And there's no way I could have done this without Mark Robert Waldman. So he was the the first person that I started to learn about the brain from. And you know, you got you. If you had seen me, Tifan, when he was teaching this to me, I, I'm coming from no knowledge about the brain, and my face. He would probably have looked at me and thought, "There's no way she's understanding this." But with time, you you really just get to understand from you know putting your head down and trying to understand something. Anybody can understand it. And then when、uh, the educator said, "I want you to write level up," and he, or you know, he's he didn't name it level up, but he said, "I want you to write a brain-based book," and he started pulling all these books off his shelf. I started to study David、uh, David Souza's "How the Brain Learns," so how the brain learns to read, to write, the special ed brain, how the brain does math. And these books, when you open them,、uh, and I'm not a neuroscience, I, I did not study neuroscience in school. I just every weekend would read these books and start to figure it out on my own, and and in such a way that I would want to explain it to other people in an easy way. And so it's just taking the time to go through and see what interests you. So it started with Mark Waldman and. And now I've actually joined his certification program because there were so many times I would have to contact him and say, "Oh, you know, I don't understand this. Can you make sure I have this correct? Because I want to present it, and I, I don't want to say anything wrong, right? You don't want to be standing in front of an audience and you're you're quoting something that's not accurate." And so I used to have to pay him for every session. And so when I joined his certification program, now I have access to everything that he teaches for forever, and I can get him whatever I need him. But、um, in the beginning, it wasn't like that. And there's lots of certification programs that you could do. People are out there that you could see who you know would meet your needs. But that's really where it started, and then through Mark Waldman, he taught me that you have to go to reputable sources for studies that you're citing, like PubMed.gov. You cannot just go to YouTube or Google and then start saying, "Well, here's how stress impacts the brain" from like an article you might find. You have to have a study, and so within his program, he taught us how to find studies. Um, how to quote studies? How to you know if you're presenting something? How to quote the research properly from PubMed and be sure that you're citing accurate information and not just pseudoscience, which has not been proven in a study. So, Andrea, in the past few years, is there any one to two books that influenced your core values or thinking a lot? Yeah, definitely.、Um, one is is the one I've already mentioned. It was Bob Proctor's "You Were Born Rich," 
and it's not rich in finances. That's that's not the meaning that I put behind it. It's that we all are born rich in potential and it's up to us to use this potential. Like you, Tifan, I know that it's not easy to create these podcasts, to reach out, to edit, but you have some desire in you um, that makes you do this, that makes you contact people, that makes you follow through and edit and release. And that's your potential. And so for me, it was uh, amazing to to see, like I can recognize the potential in other people. And it, I just look at people and I'm like, wow, that person is going to skyrocket. They're going to blow it up. I can just recognize it in in people really through starting to, to have a look at that book. And so that's where it helped me to see that, that, you know, I can really do the things that I want to do. And, you know, you might have these voices in your head sometimes that say, well, who are you to do this? And they all go away when you start to make an impact in the world with whatever you're doing. And you start to see that there's something more than, than you. It's how are you helping other people with, with your talents and abilities? So I'd say that was like the first book. And and the second book, it's always on my desk. It's The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And I don't know if you ever heard of The Four Agreements or, you know, if you just Google Four Agreements, um, the first agreement is being impeccable with your word. And I don't know where that came from for me. I've always like, if I say, oh, I'm going to go to the gym today, or I say, I'm going to do something, I do it. It's like, be impeccable with what you say. It's just, how can people trust you if you're going to, you're like, oh, I'll get that email to you, or I'll send that to you. And you never send it. It's like, uh, so it's like a, an agreement with myself that when I say something, I do it. Um, another thing is don't take anything personally. And that's a big one because remember if I had taken uh, that administrator's uh, criticism personally, like, oh, he doesn't like my book. And, and then I went home and cried and, and then called all my friends and said, what uh, that guy, he's, he's a moron. He doesn't like my stuff. And, or, you know, I could have said, well, it's not about me. What can I learn from it? So that was a big lesson. Like, don't take anything personally, or we can miss huge opportunities in life. And um, another one, don't make assumptions. Like, um, you know, you could assume something that's completely wrong and lose friendships over it. Oh, it's just not worth making assumptions. And then the last one is always do your best. And I'm sure you're the same, Tifen, with your interviews. You research extremely well the questions. You get to know people ahead of time. You want to put your best effort into everything to make an impact on the world. And so I'd say that the Four Agreements and Born Rich are two books that, that have influenced my thinking. Amazing. And Andrea, I know that you were a teacher in Canada, but now you are based in the U.S. So you kind of explore both to both education system in these countries. So if you have a superpower, superwoman power to change the education, given what you observe, what would it be? Well, definitely, I think like I've, I've put a lot of thought into this because, you know, you go into teaching 
and you think that you're going to make this incredible impact. And then what happened with me was I, I didn't even last a year. And so I just really like my, I give all of my respect to those in the classroom because it is really difficult, especially since the pandemic. And people all over the world have already made such an impact with where things are going in our schools. But the change that that I know a lot of us want to see would be we want we want stuff to happen faster. But that would mean that belief systems need to change. Like I'm talking about, you know, having my daughter be able to stand up and go pet a, a cushion in an amygdala first aid station. Like, you know, think about when I was a teacher, there's no way we would have done anything like that, you know. It's like changing beliefs takes time. And so I don't know if the impact or the change that I see is going to happen in my lifetime, but I just hope that this is a beginning for the next generation to have it better in the classroom uh, with being having this understanding of our brain, how our brains work, how our teachers' brains work, um, you know, knowing that that if I was stressed and yelling at my students, it increased the student cortisol and made them behave um, poorly. So just that understanding that changes teacher training. And so there's a lot of like moving pieces that I see and, um, and I know that the change is gonna probably take some time, but I do see that a lot of these are starting to impact schools in different pockets. Different schools are starting to implement this and it, it starts at the teacher training level and it starts at just starting one idea at a time in a school, in a district. And, and then that's really how it begins. And then the publishers on that side, because I did also, when I left the classroom, I did go into the publishing industry and I got to see how the curriculum is made from the top publishers in Canada and the US. And these little neuroscience tips could be put into the, the curriculum. So let's just say you've got a math sheet and the students are working on the math problem. There could be like a little breakout box that says, you know, if you're overwhelmed or fe feeling frustrated, take some deep breaths, something like that from the curriculum side. So there's a lot of different places and ideas and and I just think that the, the people are doing a lot of great things all over the country and the world and that eventually the change will happen, but I'm not sure when. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a slow process. Andrea, last but not least, so if our listeners who want to know more about your work, how, they can, how can they find you online? Yeah, my website is Achieve It. 360.com and they can go there they can click on the links they can learn about the program level up they can learn about the podcast and really where we began and where we're going because we're always looking at improving and doing different things with neuroscience as we're learning more over here and thank you so much for andrea you put so much great work out there thank you thank you so much for all you're doing Tifan. Thank you for listening. We will put the things mentioned in the interview to the show notes. If you enjoy our show, welcome to share and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you.